So in answer to the question, what do you think of when you hear the word commune, uh, noun or verb, I missed your pronunciation, embarrassed face, uh, cult has uh, gotten more than one vote, um, Jesus power, uh, om, hashtag new age, uh, working and living together, hippies, uh, gather together the whole world, cool but I'm naive, Kool-Aid, okay, yeah, cool or Kool-Aid, depending on your interpretation, We've got a peace emoji, a happy sign, a happy face, uh, being together with people, living in community. So kind of a, kind of a mixed bag on the commune uh, thing. That's great. If you want to go ahead and, and, and put that aside, Donya. Well, I kind of expected that we might have some mixed feelings about that word, which might mean that we have some mixed feelings about the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today here at the end of Acts chapter 4. And I've entitled today's sermon... Uh, the family of God, a counterculture. Recently, while I was at the uh, National Vineyard Conference, um, uh, I got to go to the one in Dayton. They kind of did like a two-week thing. Uh, I, was remem- I was reminded of an insightful thing that John Wimber, who is sort of the founder of the Vineyard Movement, said. Uh, he said that people come to church for all kinds of reasons, but they stay for only one. Only one reason people stay. And the reason people stay is that they make friends. They make friends. They find community, and, uh, and that's why people stick around. And I have to say that in my own journey, I've found this to be really true. Uh, while I was raised by Christian parents, or maybe kind of nominally Christian parents, Christian culture parents uh, at the time, uh, they've since kind of, all, we all kind of individually came to our own really significant and meaningful faith. Um, but I came to Jesus uh, in a way that was meaningful to me when I was about 14 years old. Uh, and I've since kind of processed and learned from uh, from conversations I've had with other people about other youth groups that I was part of a really phenomenal youth group um, when I was uh, when I was that age and it was uh, really kind of something special and uh, the the things that that attracted me into this Christian community and into this gospel movement if you will uh, were that uh, were two things in particular one they had a lot of goofy fun. So they did things like play games where you put shaving cream on your face and throw cheese balls to get them to stick, which, like, as a 14-year-old boy, you're speaking my love language. I am like, I am there for that. That is awesome. I, I might still be there for that a little bit, if I'm, if I'm totally honest, just about my own kind of uh, emotional maturity level. But, uh, you know, but the other thing that I noticed that as I went to these kind of youth group meetings and, and fun things was that the clicks kind of the social, you know, tribes uh, that were, were so present in my junior high experience, in this environment, those walls kind of disintegrated and, and people uh, were, were united and, and, and were one. And I also noticed that this kind of carried over into the school environment and that those, those cliques kind of broke down as a result of this connection in this other environment uh, that was really God-focused. And so I don't think it's an accident that this was my experience, because this is a pattern that we see throughout the New Testament. That really, if you will, the basic unit of Christianity is not a Christian, but a Christian community. That if you will, disciples don't really happen or become as individuals as much as communities of disciples are born. That's definitely the pattern that we see both in the book of Acts and in church history that really there is no way to meaningfully live out the way of Jesus without community, 
And where we see the Spirit of God moving, we see new communities of faith birth. So, you know, if we study church history, we'll see the Spirit of God will do something. There'll be a sort of a revival and a, and a new monastic community or a monastic order will be formed. Or the Spirit of God will move and, 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 and people will be motivated to go out and share the gospel with people who haven't heard it before and, and new church communities will, will be formed. Uh, new denominations or, or missionary organizations or parachurch ministries are often birthed out of a movement of the Spirit. A new experience of God creates these new communities that are centered around the mission that God has for those communities. And I think we see that strongly here in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. So let's just take a look at that now. Uh, let's see if this is working. Is this working? Do I have connection? Oh, dear. Please don't. Please don't be broken. Oh, no. Donya's upstairs. I don't know. Uh, hey, John, could you give me an assist? Sorry, man. Well, there you go. Here, I'll, I'll have to look it up in, on paper until we, get, until we get there. We got it? Oh, man. Womp, womp. Okay, here we go. Uh, we'll just, I'll read it off the slide. Uh, all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Bar-Nabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that, um, that somehow through the words that I speak here today that we would be encouraged and that we would know your heart, that we would know your mind, that we would become one uh, as you and the Father are one, and that your Holy Spirit would just bring us into unity, that we would be the family of God. And I just ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one thing I think that we see in this uh, passage that I think is a bit challenging is that we have uh, the church as really kind of a new family, right? We see the church uh, kind of radically committing to each other. They're, they're all in. People are, are leaving their old life. They're selling their stuff uh, and, and, and moving in together and giving, giving all of their resources to this one family, to this one cause in this sort of radical way. Uh, that we see this radical financial and emotional commitment to each other. Uh, and so, you know, this is, I'm just going to make a little aside here about giving. You know, hey, listen, uh, you know, we, we share things in common in this church. One of the things we share in common is this building, right? Uh, another thing, we, we also have a bunch of other stuff that, uh, that we, we share. You know, we have like a power washer that makes its rounds around. Uh, we have a, a bounce house that makes its rounds around to, to kid parties and stuff. And, and we try as a community to really share our resources and pool our resources together to make an impact on our city. Um, you know, giving financially helps that. Uh, I personally am a fan of tithing when I read this passage of Scripture because it's a lot easier for me to, to give 
uh, than to sell everything that I own and, uh, and uh, just give it to the church and, and rely on the church to take care of me. Ah, that's, that's a tough, that's a tough, tough um, you know, kind of high bar to entry. And uh, so really, I just want to say, hey, if you feel called to give, if you feel like you want to mem here, this is one of the ways to mem is that we give and we share our financial resources. I don't want to get too much onto that because I understand that, uh, you know, money isn't the only thing that we have to give. And a lot of times I think what we have seen in history is that in, in, in putting the pressure on to share financial resources or to, to uh, care for people's physical uh, needs, that we can often miss the real needs behind those, which are a sense of belonging, a, a sense of care, uh, of shared time and shared experience where we really connect on an emotional level and find that community. And it's actually often only out of that that the, that the sharing of financial or material resources takes place. One thing I think that we, uh, we, we should consider uh, is, is kind of the roots of the, of, the, um, of the vineyard movement kind of started out of this Jesus people revival in the 70s, right? And if you know anything about the vineyard movement, it came out of all these hippies came to Jesus uh, in, in the late 60s, early 70s. And so you see pictures here of people kind of wandering around, living on buses together, and, and, and really doing this radical thing. This second picture here, these, these weird-looking guys with their beards and, and haircuts that, you know, maybe we think of typical Jesus haircut um, with these guys. Uh, this is the Love family. These guys are really nuts. They, they all changed their last name to Israel and, like, adopted new names for each other and, like, lived as a family on this bus and, like, went around singing music about Jesus. I mean, it's just really like kind of wild, kind of wild. And some people are like, wow, that sounds neat. And I can see some people's faces are like, oh, dear God, please, no, don't, don't involve me in that. And, and I think that both reactions are uh, appropriate, honestly. Like there's something, there's something kind of inspiring by, about this, but there's also something kind of a little unnerving, right? There's something a little bit weird. And if you can kind of click ahead, Dania, uh, Danya, that that one of the tensions that we manage in our family, because every family has tension, right, is the tension between safety and closeness. And if you're familiar with, with some of the legacy and some of the things that happened in those communes, especially in the 70s with the Jesus People movement, you know, you take a whole bunch of people who are really kind of coming from chaos, right? So, so hippie lifestyle, uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and you say, okay, now we're, gonna, we're still going to live in a commune, but we're going to be a Christian commune. But you don't have any of the support structures of, of the accountability or the, or, or the um, vetting or, or any of the, the structures of these kind of traditional monastic communities um, that, would, that would prevent things like abuse and, um, and just like weird authoritarianism. Uh, and, and you have problems. And so the, the legacy of those, of those communes is quite mixed. It is quite mixed. I, I was reading some really heartbreaking stories of abuse in the church, uh, and those movements are no different. And so we saw kind of in reaction to that, we've seen in the last 20, 30, 40 years, we've seen, a, a, we've seen the pendulum swing the other way to where we really have a professionalization of ministry, where churches are, are in many ways operated on business principles, on uh, professionalism, on, um, you, you know, the meeting in buildings and kind of doing all the professional safe things. Uh, 
the, the community can become, or the, you know, the community space can become a lot more antiseptic and perhaps impersonal, especially with the rise of very large churches, you kind of get the feeling that maybe not everybody knows who everybody is, and you kind of lose this community feeling. And I just want to say that I think that this is not necessarily a problem to solve so much as it is a tension to manage. That we want to know that we're going to be safe. We want to know that we're going to be respected. We want to know that, that, our, that our space is accessible, that, that anybody can walk in and kind of participate at their own level. And that's part of the reason why uh, we're not doing the question and answer session today is, is that we want to make room for people who just don't have the social skills to be able to have a conversation, uh, at least in the kind of conversations that we've been having with the kind of pointed sort of somewhat intense questions we've been asking each other on Sunday mornings. We want to make room for people who just aren't ready for that yet and who can just be around, listen to what we're talking about and kind of catch things that way. Um, And I'll say more about that in a little bit. But Part of what I think we've lost, perhaps, and another tension that we manage, is that in losing this idea of church as a radical, high-commitment, family-level commitment to each other uh, that we see in these kind of more monastic communities or or communes or or things that are a little more what we would call unconventional. I'm sure the early church probably would think, well, this is just normal church. What are you guys doing? But in in part of losing that, uh, we we kind of are, are, are faced with this with this, um, this tension of support for biological nuclear family versus the church as a chosen family. And I want to say some more about this tension. What I mean is, when we read the New Testament, and when we see the commitment that, it, that is required of, of the examples that we read in the New Testament, it is a high level of commitment. It is really a death to the old life in order to be uh, included in this community. And it costs something. You give something up to, to be part of this community. And I think that, you know, churches and church communities change and develop over time. And I just want us to kind of think back. I, many of us have been part of this community for a long time, and, and a few of us at least can remember a time when uh, this community was dominated by single people, by people in their 20s, um, and, who weren't married or maybe engaged, but no kids, and just that, that, kind of, uh, that kind of stage of life. And that was sort of the core demographic. And that has shifted significantly in this community. We have a lot of families, right? We have a lot of little kids. We have a lot of married couples with kids. And I think what is a temptation and, an, and again, a tension to manage is that when we find ourselves all one thing, things can get out of balance. And so I just want to take an aside here. I want to take a few minutes to celebrate people who are in a different stage of life than myself, uh, who find themselves single, who find themselves uh, either unmarried or maybe married with no kids uh, or single, and just talk about that way of living because I'm concerned that evangelical Christianity in the United States Uh, and maybe even our church in particular, that we've focused on the family too much. That that we have overemphasized and maybe in some ways idolized family and marriage and looked to marriage as a solution uh, for things that only Christ can really give us. And so I just want to look for a moment uh, at the way that singleness is celebrated in the New Testament and then talk about how we can 
perhaps as a community, do a better job of intentionally living out this chosen family idea that we see in Scripture in ways that might challenge our uh, cultural uh, and, and maybe culturally natural assumptions about what family is and what family should be. So first, I think it's useful to look at 1 Corinthians 7, in which Paul says, I wish all of you were as I am. And when he's saying as I am, he's referring to himself being single. He's referring to himself being unmarried. And he says, I wish you were all single like me, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has gift and another has that. Uh, but I think that this is, this is not something insignificant that we should look over. And I'll ask a bit of a rhetorical question, though I would invite you to go ahead and shout out an answer if you can think of one. But, you know, when you think about the New Testament, do you think of married couples? Or do you think of single characters, right? I mean, can you name a, a married couple that's mentioned in the New Testament? Priscilla and Aquila, right? We all know that one because that's the example of women in leadership, right? Right? Apostle Peter, yeah, right? All right, who else? Right, that's two. Right, yeah, in the next chapter, we got Ananias and Sapphira. Do we want them as an example? Are they an example? I don't, right? Okay, we, got, we have a few mentions of married couples in leadership in the New Testament, but for the most part, the people that are celebrated and mentioned in the New Testament are single people. Now, just think about that and think about the leadership of most churches that you encounter in the United States. It's kind of flip-flopped, right? How often do we talk about singleness as a calling versus marriage as a calling? How often do we support and celebrate people who choose singleness or who feel called to singleness as a lifestyle? Is there, is there really space for that in our churches? And I know I'm opening a can of worms here, and I might, I might leave us with more questions than answers today. I hope you'll forgive me for that. But I just want us to really wrestle with the scriptures and think about this, particularly at this time in our community, because it's important for us to be able to support everyone who's a part of our community, and to be able to receive support from everyone who's a part of our community, even if those people are in different life stages than ourselves. All right? You know, one example of a, I don't know, kind of significant single person in the New Testament is um, Jesus, uh, and he had to say some things. He had some pretty challenging and interesting things to say uh, about, about the life he's calling us to. He says, uh, if you would go back, could you, could you, hook, could you go to um, Matthew 19, 12? Oh, no, I'm sorry. This is right. This is right. Sorry. Uh, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Well, Jesus wants me to hate my family? What the heck does that even mean? That is insane. Would you hit the next one, Donya? Um, Matthew uh, 19, 12, uh, he, he says that for there are eunuchs, you know what a eunuch is? If you don't, ask an adult, okay? So, uh, if, for there are eunuchs who were born that way, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. In Matthew uh, 22, 29 through 30, Jesus 
in, in reply to the Pharisees trying to trap him uh, and asking, you know, okay, so say uh, this guy has a wife and, and, uh, and he dies and then she marries his brother and then that guy dies and then she marries the other brother and she marries the other brother and she marries the other brother. Uh, you know, who, who at the resurrection will she be married to? Well, you know, Jesus doesn't fall for that. And he says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God, which can I just say in my own life, I find that when I am in error, it is usually because I do not know the scriptures or the power of God. But he says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Say that in a marriage class in the United States, in a church today, right? That's really rather alarming and, and concerning. And really what, what Jesus is saying is, you know, there's this, there's this story arc to Scripture, right? Creation is good, right? And then creation is fallen, and then creation is redeemed, and then creation is renewed. So we see that marriage is, is created. It's part of creation, and marriage is good. But then even in that first story, we see how it kind of gets twisted and messed up, and there are a lot of problems. But we see Jesus affirming marriage and, 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 and celebrating that in the New Testament. But what Jesus is saying here, and I think this is something that we don't, it makes us uncomfortable to ponder a bit, perhaps, particularly in church culture, is that, that earthly marriage and the way that we understand those relationships will be surpassed. That in heaven, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they will be like the angels in heaven. It's kind of a something to consider. We also see in Matthew 12, 46 through 50, that Jesus says that while he was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And, and you kind of get the idea that they're saying, hey, we need you to calm down and stop doing this crazy Messiah thing that you think you're doing. You know, you're kinda, come, come away from these crowds of people in, that you're talking to. You're a little bit, you know, you can kind of read between the lines and see that they're trying to call his attention away from the things that God has called him to do. He, he replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Now really, it's this idea of chosen family. It's this idea of a family that's oriented around pursuing and doing the will of God together that defines the New Testament church. And then we also see... Uh, this, this verse from, from John 15. And I think we can miss it if we're not careful. Jesus said this. He said that greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's wife. To lay down one's life for one's kids. To lay down one's wife for one's husband or parents or uncles. That's not what he says. He says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And friends, that is a, that is a rich word if we study the scripture of it and, we, and if we connect with the vineyard heritage of the, you know, the Quakers and they called themselves the Society of Friends, right? This idea of friendship is, is really strong in the New Testament. This, this sort of spiritual connection that isn't sexual, that's, that's deep and meaningful, that, that is, is highly committed, committed and covenant to one another, and in which we share this journey of pursuing God together. The greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. 
And I do think that this is something that people who are single can really teach those of us who are married uh, and those of us who are engrossed in the day-to-day of family. That uh, to live alone or to live um, not married, to live as a single person, you feel the need for community in a way that a person who is married or, or involved in a, in a nuclear family uh, can kind of passively check out, right? Like, my, a lot of my community needs are met just by the fact that I'm married and I have kids. Um, you know, that takes up a lot of my social and emotional bandwidth. If I put all of my needs on my family, I'm going to tax my family and hurt them. <laughs> I'm going to leave that, I'm going to leave unfulfilled. I need friends in my life, but there are many ways in which my needs do get met by my family emotionally. A person who isn't married or, or used to be married or, or whatever finds themselves single for whatever reason doesn't have that kind of support. And I think it's important for us to think about, just as we, as we continue to be a community, that we understand that you know, being single in your teens or 20s, um, that's one thing. Being single at 30 or 40 or 50 is a totally different experience of life. And I think that what we need to do in recognizing our single Savior as an example to follow is to look to these people not only as people who we can help by inviting into community, but as people who are fully human, fully whole, not broken, not needing to be fixed because of their singleness, not needing to be matched or, or in some way managed but that single people are full members of the community of God. And in fact, in in many church traditions, you have to be single in order to be qualified to lead. Something for us to think about as we pursue community with everyone who is part of this particular church. And so then the question becomes, you know, how do we define our family, right? How do we define who gets to be part of our church family, of our, and, and the way we think of nuclear family? You know, the, the nuclear family is really a rather recent invention. And as we look to the scriptures to connect us to this tradition that, you know, spans thousands of years, spans cultures, spans governments, spans all kinds of different iterations and imaginations over the, over the centuries, you know, we should look to that and, and really ask, what is God calling me to in terms of my family, in terms of my family unit, as I think about my life in his kingdom and in his leadership? And I think it's, it, I think it's right, I think it's good to get our motivation straightened out. You know, why are we single if we are that way? Are we just, are we victims of our singleness? Or are we choosing to remain faithful to Jesus and this is what he's called us to? Are we single so that we can kind of consume unhindered and do whatever we want to do? Or are we single because we believe that that is what God has called us to in this moment or perhaps over a lifetime and and so we can serve unhindered by the needs of family? Are we just married so we can have a lot of sex? I mean, is that really what marriage is supposed to be about? Is that, really the, is that really at the heart of God's design for marriage? Is that, the, is that the primary reason? I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just saying 
I'm just saying, is it, is it just so that I won't be lonely? Or am I married so that I can die to myself in service to my spouse and my children, my partner for life? Whether we're single or we're married, the call of Christ is to die to self in service to others. To give all that we have in pursuit of welcoming strangers and encouraging brothers and sisters to experience God and grow closer to Father. And so how do we put this into practice? One, I'd say we need to be intentional. We need to ask that question. If you could actually go back one slide, I'm so used to this working. Uh, how do you, ask God, how do you want to define the boundaries of my family? Who do I include? And I would, I would just ask us to, I want to invite us into really considering this question, you know, when we think about our neighbors, when we think about our extended family, when we think about uh, the people in our block and in our life who, who need community, which is a, a need that every single person has, I, I don't know that it is safe to assume that what we've been handed by culture and even what we've been handed by Christian culture as the, the nuclear family, as the, the only answer that is legitimate to this question. In fact, we've seen many examples in history where the church has chosen to live in radical community with people that are outside of those boundaries. Now, I'm not saying, come on, look, I'm not trying to say get a divorce. I'm not trying to say do anything crazy like that. I mean, you know, for crying out loud, God cares about your marriage. God cares about your kids. I'm not saying go out into the woods and join a commune tomorrow. I'm just saying that I don't know that we should assume that we're supposed to eat dinner without guests every night of the week. I'm not sure that we should assume that when we go on a family vacation that it's just our nuclear family every time. I'm not sure that we should assume that our house belongs to only our nuclear family. That maybe God would call us to practice hospitality in a way that's countercultural that's radical, that we might invite others in. We could think about this in terms of the number of churches and the number of kids in our foster care system. Who is going to be a parent to the orphans in our society if not the church? How do we welcome the, the stranger? How do we practice hospitality for, for people who are, you know, refugees or or, or you know, immigrants to our country? How do we, how do we welcome the, the lonely and the hurt and the dying? Do we spend time with the old, with the needy? I think it's just good to allow God to come into that and to speak to us on a personal level, to, to pray as nuclear families and say, how do we walk out this radical welcome of the kingdom as a family? And who do we include in that definition? Do we really protect, when we're, when we're talking about our family needs, are we talking about what our actual needs are, or are we talking about our preferences? Good questions to ask. Heavy, you know, think about that, pray about that, consider it. I do want to just say, I think that historically our church has done a pretty good job at pushing those boundaries, and I'm really proud of us. Uh, I've, seen, I've seen you guys give cars away and welcome people to stay in your homes for an extended period of time. I've seen 
the way you make time for each other and listen to each other, that the way that we pursue real friendship with each other outside the boundaries of church on Sunday morning and the way that, um, especially the way that many of the single people that have been part of this community that is like overwhelmingly families uh, have made space for me as a person and been a friend to me personally. I've been very blessed by that community. And so I just want to say, hey, good job. Keep going. Keep asking those questions. Keep wrestling with God about this. All right? So be intentional about defining family. Second, I th- and I think this is, this is where we've fallen off, in the ho- off the horse in the past, is no needs to be an okay answer. And counterintuitively, I actually think that this uh, understanding is what creates authentic community, okay? At the Vineyard, we have this practice of asking, can I pray for you right now? And then hopefully people say yes, and we pray, and like powerful stuff happens. But when we ask that question, it's important, I think, for us to understand that we're really asking that the answer can be no. And that if the answer is no, okay, you don't, you know, we're not going to push in. We're not going to violate another person's will. And then the follow-up question to that question that we, that we try to ask at work and at church and wherever we find ourselves is, if the answer is yes, I can pray for you right now, how can I pray for you? you know, uh, what, what do you want to ask God for? That's an important question when we pray for others and when we encounter each other in community. And so when we, when we come to other, other questions like, hey, would you like to come over for dinner on Thursday night? Uh, and the answer is no, that needs to be okay. We need to be okay with that. When, when people say, hey, can I, you know, would it be possible, could, could you do this favor for me? Can you help me move or can you help me with this? Sometimes the answer needs to be no in order to care for the children that God has placed in our lives through our, our through biological necessity, right? Like, no has to be okay. It has to be okay to say no so that our yes can really have meaning. And we need to have enough trust with each other that when we hear no or the answer is no uh, or we're giving a no, that we know that that person that we're saying no to will continue to stick with us and continue to ask and that we will continue to ask when people say no to us. All right? And and I think that that just needs to be part of our church culture, that, that if you will, we need to not engage in Midwestern passive aggression when we ask questions and when we invite each other into community. When we make an invitation, it needs to be an invitation, not a coercion, right? And that's just a very important foundational thing about community. And there needs to be enough of an underlying commitment to each other that we can weather the no's, right? And so maybe a good way to respond with no, if you're the person who can't fulfill the, the hoped uh, invitation of the person who's asking you for something or to invite you into a kind of community that you can't do, you know, you can say, you know, no this time, but I really hope you'll keep asking, right? One example, just to sort of like wrap our minds around this, you know, Kara and I were planting a church in Philadelphia, and we had these friends who were, you know, they were like our age, maybe actually a little older, but they didn't have any kids. And so one night, we're at home, and we've, we've like, finally got, uh, you know, Bolt was, was the only kid we had at that moment. Uh, we finally got, you know, our, our baby to sleep, 
And uh, we, we receive a text, and, the, and, and these people like to dance. And so they're like, hey, it's 11 o'clock. Hey, we're going to Tiger Beats. Do you want to come? I'm like, what? how are we going to come? We've got a kid at home. We're just going to, like, leave the house and go, you know. The answer is no, and that's okay. We were able to remain friends. But, you know, and so we said, hey, not this time. We need a little more advance notice, all right? There's going to be some awkwardness sometimes with people in different stages of life, and it's natural, and that's okay. And that's why, part of why it's, it's got to be okay to say no, okay? Then our yes can have meaning, and we can have a conversation about why uh, it's not okay to ask, you know, parents at 11 o'clock at night if they want to go out. It just doesn't, doesn't work at that level of spontaneity. All right? Uh, the last thing, and maybe the most important, is that we have to resist the urge to protect ourselves from the pain of community. That we have to stay vulnerable. We have to keep asking, knowing sometimes we'll be rejected. We have to, we have to we have to push in when it's tough. We have to continue to, to work towards uh, being open. We have to not protect ourselves from commitment. We have to stay when things aren't easy. And we have to open our hearts, in some sense, to the possibility of, of being hurt by the people that we love and care for. You know, it's easy to hold everyone at arm's distance and say, I'm not, I'm not going there. I don't want to commit to that team. I don't want to commit to serving that way because, uh, because while that will create the opportunity for me to be in community, it will also mean that I don't get my free time. Or to say, you know, yeah, I would like to, to be part of that small group and to really get into some deep stuff and, and pray about some things that are close to the heart and close to the soul, um, but I'm worried I'll be rejected. I'm worried people won't understand me. I'm worried that when people see who I really am, that they won't really like me. We have to stay vulnerable. We have to stay open to the possibility of love in a community for it to happen and for it to be real. We have to resist the urge to protect ourselves and to not confess and to not be open and to not pray for each other because we're worried that we'll be hurt or rejected. Everybody understand? Cool. Would you stand? We're going to take a minute to pray for each other here. And this is the part of the service where people get healed. Uh, Emotionally, physically, spiritually, all kinds of stuff can happen. Um, And so I just want to make the invitation that Maybe something's stirring in you as I was speaking, and you're like, oh, man, yeah, I, I, need to, I need to repent of protecting myself. I need to stay vulnerable. I'd like prayer about that. Come get prayer. Uh, or, you know, I've been hurt by people saying no, and I need to forgive those people and, and change. You know, um, please, come get prayer. Or if you're really just wrestling with what does family look for, like for me in my stage of life, and how do I do this high-commitment thing, Uh, that church sort of requires. Um, Those are all really good things to get prayer about this morning. Also, yeah, yeah, you just want to do it? Yeah, go ahead. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so um, for those of you that